please consider making a donation to the Historian's Podcast Fund Drive. You'll find the link to our GoFundMe campaign and an explanation of how to donate by mail on our website, bobcudmore.com. This is Bruce Henderson. I'm the author of Bridge to the Sun, The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II. Uh, This is a new book that just came out two weeks ago. Um, I'm a nonfiction writer, uh, a military historian, and I've done uh, a number of books on World War II and specifically the Pacific Theater. But I I came across this story rather by happenstance when I was at the archives four years ago researching my, uh, my previous book called Sons and Soldiers about the Jewish Ritchie boys who were trained and sent over to Europe as uh, German language interrogators and interpreters. And I, I, had, I had heard that the Japanese uh, Americans had fought in Europe for the famous 442nd as infantrymen uh, against the Germans, but I did not know that there were a group of almost 4,000 of them who were sent to the Pacific in the war against their parents' homeland, Japan, and I thought that would be an interesting story to tell, to look at what kind of conflicts they had and what their motivations were, and that's what I set out to do. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore, Bruce Henderson with us. Again, his book is called Bridge to the Sun, The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II. So your work on the American Jews who went to Germany kind of preceded uh, looking at the uh, Japanese who were impressed into the war. I shouldn't say impressed, that's a nasty word, Um, but who served in the American uh, military to uh, be translators uh, in the the Pacific theater. Why did uh, it take so long it, it, it's your the publicity for the book talks about it's now it can be told or this and that. What 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 was the holdup here? Why wasn't this um, brought out earlier? In the case of the Japanese Americans who were trained by the Army's military intelligence service during the war, it was simply a matter of not wanting the enemy, the the Japanese Army. Uh, in the Pacific to know that we had the language capability uh, in that theater. The the Japanese of that era were rather arrogant uh, that their their language was not going to be easily understood by Westerners, particularly the, the writing and, and reading, you know, of the characters, and there were tens of thousands of their characters that go into the, the writing of Japanese. And so they were rather lax in... Uh, in their communications in the battlefield. Uh, uh, not that they didn't have war codes, they did, but uh, they were very relaxed in terms of not only talking, but at times, I mean, what they would leave behind on the battlefield. For example, every Japanese soldier, uh, unlike the GIs who were told they could not keep uh, diaries for, for the good reason that if they get caught you know, if they get captured and uh, the enemy ha- um, uh, gets that kind of material that they could learn a lot about uh, the individual units in the field. But the Japanese soldiers were under no prohibition. They most, for the most part, they kept their personal diaries with them. So these were being found on the battlefields and were being brought in 
And with these teams of uh, Japanese Americans or Nisei, uh, first-generation American-born uh, Japanese, uh, they were able to do an immediate um, uh, interpretation of, of you know what they were uh, what they possibly uh, tactical and strategical intelligence that would be you know enormously helpful not only in winning the next battle over the hill but in saving American lives. So that's why it was secret then. Now, it stayed secret for a really long time because it's military intelligence, and there was, uh, it was simply not declassified for, for many years, probably 40 or 50 years after the war. But even then, nobody rushed in to find out about because there are only about 4,000 of these guys, and they served in very small 10-man teams assigned to larger units, and uh, there was kind of a story that was that was lost, if you will, in the midst of history. As you say, they served in several theaters of war in the in the Pacific or areas of war. I believe specifically Burma, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa. Well, Bob, they were everywhere that that American forces were. Uh, I have I follow we follow six of these uh, um, uh, Nisei in the Pacific and. They went all the way from uh, Adak, uh, Alaska, to Burma. They were in Okinawa, Iwo Jima, uh, the Philippines, New Guinea. I mean, wherever there were U.S. forces uh, fighting, and, and even down in Australia with MacArthur, there were about 400 of them uh, translating and interpreting, uh, again, materials that were being uh, shipped in from, from the battlefields and uh, to and so they were they were really everywhere they were in small teams they would be assigned for example to a battalion or a regiment or a, a, a division and um and so they they were from the front lines all the way back is the way to put it uh, so it's just that you followed for the purposes of your book uh, like a discrete number of the Nisei, but they were they were everywhere well that's what i try to do, Bob, in my writing, I, I, when it comes to writing history, I strive to tell a big story through the lives of a few who lived it. And I want the readers to really feel not only that the story is happening before them, but that they actually know who these guys were and what they were feeling and what they were thinking and what they were worrying about and what they were afraid of and how they were motivated. And and, you know, the kind of the, if you will, the interior of this character. And so I choose a small cast, and I choose them carefully because, in this case, I'm telling the, the big story, of course, is World War II in the Pacific, which was a mighty big theater. And, uh, and so I wanted coverage of that entire theater. I, wanted, I didn't want them, in other words, all in the same place at the same time. So that's mm -hmm. how I chose who to who to follow, who to have in my cast. How did this come to be? Uh, you used the word motivation. What motivated these Nisei, these uh, American-born descendants of the Japanese, what motivated them to uh, work for what you, some might see as the enemy um, in, in World War II? The Japanese-American soldiers that we're talking about are as, were as, as American as, 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 you know, any of us. I mean, they, they, were, for the, they were born in California, for example, and went to school down, down the street with, you know, and, and they, they were just, they were Americans. Uh, their 
parents were very, very much, you know, still Japanese immigrants. They were not allowed to be naturalized citizens. Many of them had come over, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the in the 1920s and even earlier, and and you know, farmed and uh, you know, uh, set up businesses and worked very hard, you know, to to build a life here in this country. But they were still Japanese citizens, and um, simply because they couldn't become American citizens. Their offspring, of course, being born here, uh, were, upon birth, were, were American citizens. So these, these young men, when, when war broke out and, and Japan attacked, attacked Pearl Harbor, they were, as, they were as patriotic as any American wanting to defend their country, which was America. And very interesting, their parents sent them off with uh you know with with statements like this is your country uh and you need to go and defend her and fight for her and 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 make us proud and so the the parents were absolutely uh willing to what give up their sons for, for to fight for America now the added motivation for some of these young men admittedly is the fact that they got rounded up along with their parents and all of the other ethnic Japanese on the West Coast, and put in internment camps behind barbed wire and, you know, gun towers. The guns were pointing inward, by the way, and not outward. And um, so uh, one of the motivations when the Army recruiters came by, and they did go into the camps trying to find some of these fellows who, who uh, were fluent in, in Japanese for these, for these intelligence teams, uh, you know, it was a way out of the camp. Uh, you know, if they volunteered for the Army, they could get out immediately. They could defend their country. Uh, and, and what I say in the war, what I say in the book is they really had two wars they were fighting simultaneously, these, these young men. They were over in the Pacific fighting that war. And uh, at the same time, their parents were, they, of course, they thought quite unfairly being held, you know, behind Bob Wired in, in some desert... Uh, uh, camp, and uh, they wanted that to end too. They wanted the war to end. They mm-hmm. wanted the, and of course, there were a lot of uh, anti-Asian uh, racial racial policies on the books, and even, and I think this is an important title to come out now of all times because we are seeing such anti-immigration sentiments still being so prevalent in this country, and we're often, I think, uh, you know, prejudge people much too quickly based on race and ethnicity and countries of origin. So I think this is a kind of timeless message of what really true patriotism is. And the Japanese-Americans, uh, the elders and their offspring, they, they weren't treated well by the U.S. government. I mean, this is was a story before the story about these Nisei who were doing the intelligence work for the Army. There was uh, incredible uh, anti-Asian uh, sentiment, uh, both you know, practiced by the government as well as, as well as in, in many cases their own neighbors. Uh, you know, when when these folks were being rounded up and they didn't know how long they were going to be away from their their home, and, and uh, of course it turned out to be uh, at least a couple of years. They were in these camps before they started releasing some of them, but uh, you know, their 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 neighbors were. <laughs> coming over and, and helping themselves to whatever was in the barn and in the house. And, 
and you know it was it was pretty pretty horrific to see what the families lost uh and and there was really no reason these these folks were not you know were not uh, japanese agents uh, uh ready to sabotage you know military installations in california they were they were families uh, hard working families and but they had the face of the enemy and they couldn't help that the um, face of the enemy posed problems when they were in the U.S. Army, uh, let, let's say. Didn't, didn't you tell the anecdote or story that uh, each Nisei um, translator, would, if he was in, in combat, would have a protector or somebody, well, a bodyguard, I guess is the word to use. Yeah, somebody assigned to him. Uh, you know, uh, for example, in... Uh, the case of Nabu Fere, who was at Iwo Jima, he was he was he, even though he was in the army, he was loaned to the Marines uh, for this assault, and uh, he was in a Marine uniform on the beach, you know, and landed with the with the waves of assault troops, and uh, uh, he and a sergeant, a Marine sergeant, uh, uh, an Irishman from from Jersey, assigned to him to make sure that he didn't get shot by the Marines. Well. At the same time that he's trying to do his job, which is all of these, you know, papers are coming in off the field and even occasional uh, prisoners, and he's trying to interrogate them and trying to read the, these documents. Uh, the call goes out that uh, the Japanese troops were stripping the uniforms off of the dead Marines, putting them on and, and infiltrating uh, the American lines. So if you see a Japanese in a marine uniform shoot him well and here's our guy doing his job he's in an american uniform so the point is that he could have gotten shot from either side and how how that must have felt and 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 how courageous that was to be out there and not ducking your head the entire time i mean it was amazing and some of them by the way and not by the way some of them sadly um you know, were were victims of of uh, friendly fire and 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 were killed accidentally uh, by by their own troops. You mentioned that uh, gentleman's name. What was it again? The, Nab- the ch- uh, yeah, at Iwo Jima, Nabu Nabu. Let me uh, make an example of Nabu. How do you know? Uh, how did Nabu get into this this operation? Yeah, well, now he was one of the. Uh, uh, ones who was not in a camp when the war broke out. He was born in Colorado, and and they they did not round up uh, Japanese in Colorado because it was not close to the coast, and uh, you know it wasn't every ethnic Japanese in the country who got rounded up. They were mostly uh, worried about the West Coast um, uh, folks, you know, in case of you know sabotage of of the bases again. That's what the government was looking at. Uh, and uh, so anyway, his family was a farm family in Colorado. When the war broke out, he went down the next week to sign up uh, for the Army. I mean, he went down to his uh, recruiting station in, in Denver, and they said, boy, we're getting a lot of people coming in now. Could you come back next month? And he said, sure. So he went back next month, and they signed him up. He, he, he went into the Army. And uh, at that point, the Army wasn't really sure what to do with Japanese-Americans in their ranks. And in some places, they were actually discharging them just simply to, to not have to deal with them and to not 
can we give them guns? Can we trust them? Can we? Uh, will, will they be? You know, will they? Will they actually fight for us? I mean, there were you know some of those some of those thoughts out there. But he was able to to stay in. Although at one point he was, um, I guess, sort of under house arrest with about twenty or thirty other Japanese American soldiers, and they could not figure out what was going on and whether they were going to be discharged or what. Well, about this time, the rec- a recruiter for the language school the military intelligence language school came to the base and signed up as many of these guys as they could who were fluent in the language and who they they needed in that you know in that very special capacity in the pacific so he went off and that was that was you know and he was he saw action from you know from Adak Alaska to Iwo Jima um yeah he was he was in a lot of places in the pacific is there some specific uh, American, or I mean, who was not Japanese, who came up with this program, or how did the the um, uh, government or the U.S. Army decide this might be a good idea? Well, there was a group of um, career army officers uh, who had been in the 30s, you know, well before the war, who had been assigned, uh, who had who had done duty in, at the embassy in Tokyo, and and had spent uh, a couple of years, in some cases, uh, observing the Japanese army uh, and uh, became uh, students of the language themselves. And when they, they, they came back, you know, and as the uh, tensions were in, in increasing between Japan and America, and they, they realized and they counseled, you know, at the uh, highest levels that they could that if we did go to war with Japan, we were going to be at a real disadvantage because we had so few people in the military who certainly could read or write uh, uh, this language, and whereas uh, quite quite the contrary when it came to uh, fighting Germany, we had a lot of people who knew, knew German, and, uh, uh, and so uh, that was sort of the beginning of the let's figure this out, and actually a month before Pearl Harbor, the Army opened its first Japanese language school at the Presidio in San Francisco, and they had 50 students. And um, one of them, in fact, was Tom Sakamoto, who's one of my characters in my book. He was there at the beginning, and then right after Pearl Harbor, they not only did that school have to move as well, get off the coast and go to Minnesota, but of course they increased the number of students by the second class. They had about 700 of these Japanese-American uh, guys in there for the six months of um, very uh, intense uh, studying. Um, even though they knew the language, um, they needed to know the military terms, both American Army, mm-hmm. Japanese Army. They needed to know the rules of how you handle prisoners of war, uh, you know, various things that had to, they had to learn. And the tough school and if they didn't make it they were they were sent back to their original units but um so that's how the program started and, and then really escalated when it was needed what uh, after a, a, say a japanese soldier was captured and I, I gather that was harder than let's say capturing a german soldier um and maybe you can address that as well what did the uh, nisai do in terms of an interrogation yeah well first of all the japanese soldier was um what i mean it, it was drilled into him that he was never ever 
to surrender. And it, death was, was more honorable. Uh, we had, certainly in, in the beginning of the war, uh, a very, very difficult time uh, capturing any prisoners. Uh, and uh, also, interestingly, the Japanese Army didn't teach their soldiers what to do if they were captured. In other words, they didn't know anything about the Geneva Convention. Our, our GIs knew that if you became a prisoner of the enemy, you could say your name, rank, and serial number, and you know, and keep quiet about everything else. And they were they were trying to, to you know to be prepared for this. Well, the Japanese soldiers simply were not. And when they were captured, uh, they and in fact this is true also for for Europe for that matter with the with the Jewish Ritchie boys. They is when the Germans were captured the same thing. They they needed to be interrogated right away very close to the uh to the actual uh front lines that's when they were the, the most vulnerable the hungry uh scared uh in other words if you try to interrogate a guy 2 weeks later by then he's gotten comfortable and realized you're going to feed him and probably not going to you know torture him to death but right away when they're captured uh is the best time to question them about their their unit their you know, whatever kind of military information they have. And so that's why the interrogators needed to be out there that that close. But so the Japanese prisoner, once he realized, oh, he's not going to be tortured to death, as he had been brainwashed, the Americans would do, uh, oh, I am getting uh, uh, something to eat, I am getting a cigarette, uh, he became very, uh, he became very, um, um, passive, very uh, cooperative, and he he would start again. He wasn't trained what to what to say and what not to say, so he would start talking and and would actually give out a surprising amount of information. But what was interesting was every one of them would say something along the lines of, "Do not report me as a prisoner of war," because that was the common thing. Um, it was a common. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what happened is your name would go down to the Red, uh, to the Red Cross as a prisoner, and then you know this is the same thing as in Europe and stuff. Do not, I do not want my family to know I'm a prisoner. Uh, they can never know because I can never return home. I, I'm I'm in shame, you know, from here on out. But I'll tell you what I know, and so that was their mindset. Can you uh, speak to any specific find of intelligence that uh, the Nisei questioning these? Uh, prisoners came up with, you know, uh, you know, um, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, sort of a fishing expedition. It varies greatly, as you can imagine, from the tactical, which is the small, in, small field, well, small kind of battlefield uh, I- intelligence. By that I mean, you know, where is the the minefield? Uh, where's the, where are, are the tanks right now? Are they on the other side of that hill or? on this side, and that's tactical, tactical kind of information, which is extremely important when, you know, when you're, you know, that close up in the battlefield and, and trying to, your, your commanders are trying to decide, you know, how to get around them or how to get through them or, or whatever. And then the other uh, form of, of intelligence gathering is the strategical, which is the big picture. Uh, will will the Japanese army be landing reinforcements, for example, at Guadalcanal, and if so, in what time period? Uh, that, of course, came from uh, uh, normally from documents 
that were recovered. Uh, there was a, uh, I'll give you an example of a key document that was found in a, um, uh, a life raft. It, and this plane had been shot down and it uh, had held a, uh, a Japanese admiral and uh, uh, some other, you know, officers. And uh, this, this very thick book, was found in this life raft with uh, one or two survivors, or I forget whether they were they had lived or not. But the, they found the book, and it was in Japanese, of course, and no one knew, you know, on, on on at that point what what it contained. So they shipped it back to uh, uh, MacArthur's headquarters in Australia, where these Japanese American uh, intelligence um, translation teams were, and they went to work on it. And it turned out to be a, a list of all of the uh, military manufacturers in Japan and what they were making uh, specifically, guns, tanks, what components, and uh, where they were located. Well, needless to say, this information went to the uh, Air Corps uh, and uh, got mm-hmm. um, um, you know, used for, for bombing raids. We're running toward the end of the, our time. Um, what did these uh, Nisei um, Japanese do after the war? Any GI. I mean, they, they did a, a, a gamut. I mean, a lot of them came back, you know, went to school, uh, went to work, uh, uh, raised families. Uh, again, they, uh, they were told when they were discharged that they couldn't talk about what they did. It was military intelligence, still classified. Uh, they were, because they were in small teams, there weren't, you know, like if you remember the 101st Airborne, you know, usually by, by year five, you were having your first reunion and getting together with all the guys that you jumped with. But in this case, there were no real reunions. There were these small teams, and they only knew each other, you know, who were on the team with them. Mm-hmm. And um, they got busy with their lives. I've had a number of families tell me that what I've come up with in terms of what uh, their their father or grandfather did. Uh, he had never told them even, uh, and uh, he didn't talk about it. And uh, you know how revealing it is for them to be learning uh, some of this stuff about their own their own relative. What does um, your title mean? Bridge to the Sun. Well, I was trying to show, and in the case of the uh, six individuals that I uh, that we followed in the war, both of them. Uh, uh, all of them, as boys, were sent to Japan for a year or two, usually um, sometimes a little longer, to go to school there. In other words, when they were 8, 10, 12. And this is not uncommon for Japanese immigrant parents to send their sons, and usually their oldest sons, uh, to Japan to live with the relatives, to get to learn about the language and the culture and, you know, their ancestors and whatnot. And then these boys came back, and um, so they um, they were known as as Kibe, uh, meaning that Nisei that went to Japan and then returned. They were, of course, uh, fully fluent then in uh, the reading and writing of the uh, of Japanese. Where uh, some of you know a lot of the Nisei who didn't go to Japan. Uh, uh, you know, he would say being raised in, in California and helping mom and dad on the farm, 
didn't necessarily read and write Japanese fluently. They were Americans. Is there anything you could add for maybe 20 seconds to uh, something else you'd like to throw in there in discussing your book? Well, again, I, I feel like this is a this is a, gr- a great time uh, and, uh, to to read uh, a story about this and be reminded, you know, where 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 we and I mean us as Americans that we all came from somewhere. And uh, but uh, uh, the fact that uh, these these fellows were, um, you know, b- uh, born of and raised by by immigrants, but they were they were they were so willing and so ready. Uh, to step forward and defend America, and I think that's a that's a great message for us to hear today. Bruce Henderson is author of Bridge to the Sun, the secret role of the Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.